LastPass, again, fun with quantum computing, and cybersecurity predictions for 2023, all that and more on the Naked Security Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. I am Doug Ameth. He is Paul Ducklin. Paul, let's see if I remember how to do this. It's been a couple weeks, but uh, I hope you had a great holiday break. And I do have a post-holiday gift for you. As you know, we like to begin the show with a This Week in Tech History segment. Is this the gift? This is the gift. I believe you will be interested in this more than uh, just about any other This Week in Tech History segment. This week on January 4th, 1972. The HP 35 Portable Scientific Calculator, a world first, was born. Named the HP 35 simply because it had 35 buttons, the calculator was a challenge by HP's Bill Hewlett to shrink down the company's desktop-sized 9100A scientific calculator so it could fit in his shirt pocket. The HP 35 stood out for being able to perform trigonometric and exponential functions on the go, things that until then had required the use of slide rules. At launch, it sold for $395, almost $2,500 in today's money. And Paul, I know you to be a fan of old HP calculators. Old HP calculators, HP calculators. (laughs) Just in general, yes, okay. And apparently, at the launch, Bill Hewlett himself was showing it off. And remember, this is a calculator that is replacing a desktop calculator slash computer that weighed 20 kilograms. Apparently, he dropped it. If you've ever seen an old HP calculator, they were beautifully built. So he picked it up. Of course, it worked. And apparently, all the salespeople at HP built that into into their repartee when they went out on the road to do demos. They'd accidentally or otherwise let their calculator fall and then just pick it up and carry on regardless. (laughs) <laughs> Love make it. him like they're used to, Doug. They certainly don't. Those were the days. Incredible. Okay, let's talk about something that's not so cool. Uh-oh. LastPass, we said we'd keep an eye on it, and we did keep an eye on it, and it got worse. It turns out to be a long-running story where LastPass, the company, apparently simply did not realize what had happened and every time they scratched that rust spot on their car a little bit the hole got bigger until eventually the whole thing fell in so how did it start they said look the crooks got in but they were only in for four days and they were only in the development network so it's our intellectual property oh dear silly us but don't worry we don't think they got into the customer data Then they came back and said they definitely didn't get into the customer data or the password vaults because those aren't accessible from the development network. Then they said, well, actually, it turns out that they were able to do what's known in the jargon as lateral movement based on what they stole in incident one. There was incident two where actually they did get into customer information. So we all thought, oh, dear, that's bad. But at least they haven't got the password vaults. And then they said, "Oh, oh, by the way, when we said customer information, let us tell you what we mean. We mean a whole lot of stuff about you, like your who you are, where you live, what mm. your phone and email contact details are, stuff like that, and your password vault. Okay. And then they said, oh, you know, when we said vault, which you probably imagine a great big door going shut and a big wheel being turned and huge bolts coming through and everything inside locked up. Well, in our vault, only some of the stuff was actually secured and the other stuff was effectively in plain text. But don't worry, it was in a proprietary format. 
So actually your passwords were encrypted, but the websites and the web services and an unstated list of other stuff that you stored, well, that wasn't encrypted. So it's a special sort of zero knowledge, which is a phrase they'd used a lot. <clears throat> I left a dramatic pause there, Doug. <laughs> and then it turned out <laughs> that, you know how they've been telling everybody, don't worry, there's 100,100 iterations of HMAC SHA-256 in PBKDF2? Mm-hmm, well, mm-hmm. Maybe. Not for everyone. If you had first installed the software after 2018, that might be the case. Well, I first installed the uh, software in 2017, so I was not privy to this state-of-the-art encryption. And I just checked. I did change my master password, but it was uh, it's a setting. you got to go into your account settings, and there's a, an advanced settings button. You click that, and then you get to choose the number of times your password is tumbled and uh, mine was still set at 5,000. Between that and getting the email on the Friday before Christmas, which I read, clicked through the blog post, read the blog post, and my impression of my reaction is as follows. Just a long sigh. But probably louder than that in real life. Just, just keeps getting worse, so. I'm out. I think I'm done. It's, really? Uh, that, okay. That's enough. I've start, I have had already started uh, transitioning to a different provider, but this was, I don't even want to say the last straw. I mean, there were so, so many straws and uh, <laughs> they just kept breaking. When you choose a password manager, you have to assume that this is some of the most advanced technology available and it's protected better than anything. And this just doesn't seem like it was the case. But at least I didn't get my credit card number, although I could have got a new credit card in three and a quarter days, probably more quickly than changing all my passwords including my password and every Mm -hmm. account in there Mm -hmm. okay so if we if we have people out there who are um, LastPass users they're thinking of switching or they're wondering what they can do to shore up their account i can tell them firsthand to go into your account go to the general settings and then click the advanced settings tab and see what the uh what the iteration count is it you choose it. So mine was set. My account was so old that it was set at five thousand. I set it to something much much higher. They give you a recommended number. I would go even higher than that. And then it uh, re-encrypts your whole account. But but like we said, it's not the cat's out of the bag. If you don't change all your passwords and they manage to crack your master password, they've got an offline copy of your account. So just changing your master password and just re-encrypting everything like that doesn't do the job completely. Exactly. If you go in and your iteration count is still at five thousand. That's the number of times they hash, 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 and rehash your password before it's used in order to slow down password guessing attacks. That's the number of iterations used on the vault that the crooks now have. So even if you change it to 100,100, strange count, Naked Security recommends 200,000. OWASP, I believe, recommends something like 310,000. So LastPass saying, oh, well, you know, we do a really, really sort of gung-ho, above-average 100,100. I would call that somewhere in the middle of the pack, not exactly spectacular. But changing that now only protects the cracking of your current vault, not the one that the crooks have got. So to conclude, Happy New Year, everybody. You've got your weekend plans already, so you're welcome there. And uh, I can't believe I'm saying this again, but we will keep an eye on this. 
All right, we'll stay on the uh, cryptography train and talk about quantum computing. Uh, according to the United States of America, it's time to get prepared, and the best preparation is cryptographic agility. Yes, this was a fun little story that I wrote up between Christmas and New Year because I thought it was interesting. And apparently so did loads of readers because we've had active comments there. Quantum computing is its like a cool thing, isn't it? It's like nuclear fusion or dark matter or superstring theory or gravitons, all that sort of stuff. Everyone has a vague idea of what it's about, but not many people really understand it. So the theory of quantum computing, very loosely speaking, is that it's a way of constructing an analog computing device, if you like, that is able to do certain types of calculation in such a way that essentially all the answers appear immediately inside the device. And the trick you have is that if you can collapse this, what is called, I believe, a superposition based on quantum mechanics, if you can collapse this superposition such that the answer you actually want is the one that pops out and all the others vanish in a puff of quantum smoke, then you can imagine what that might mean for cryptography. Because you might be able to reduce the time taken to do cryptographic cracking dramatically. And in fact, there are two main sorts of algorithmic speedup that are possible if powerful enough quantum computers come along. One of them deals with cracking things like symmetric key encryption, like AES, or colliding hashes like SHA-256, where if you needed an effort in the amount of X before quantum computing, you might be able to solve that problem, do that cracking, with an effort of just the square root of X afterwards. But even more importantly, for another class of cryptographic algorithms, notably some sorts of public key cryptography, you could reduce the effort, the cracking effort required from X to the logarithm of X. And to give you an idea of how dramatic those changes can be, talking in base 10, let's say you have a problem that would take you a million units of effort. The square root of a million is a thousand. Sounds much more tractable, doesn't it? And the logarithm of one million is just six. So the concern about quantum computing and cryptography is not merely that today's cryptographic algorithms might require replacing at some time in the future. The problem is actually that the stuff we're encrypting today, hoping to keep it secure, say, for a couple of years or even for a couple of decades, might, during the lifetime of that data, suddenly become crackable almost in an instant, especially to an attacker with plenty of money. So in other words, we have to make the change of algorithm before we think that these quantum computers might come along, rather than waiting until they appear for the first time. You've got to be ahead in order to stay level, as it were. We have to remain cryptographically agile so that we can adapt to these changes. And if necessary, we can adapt proactively well in advance. And that is what I think they meant by cryptographic agility. Cybersecurity is a journey, not a destination. And part of that journey is anticipating where you're going next, not waiting till you get there. What a segue to our next story. When it comes to predicting what will happen in 2023, we should remember that history has a funny way of repeating itself. It does, Doug. And that is why I had a rather curious headline that I was thinking, hey, wouldn't it be cool if I could have a, a headline like Naked Security 33 and a third? Mm hmm. I couldn't quite remember why I thought that was funny. And then I remembered <laughs> it was Frank Drebin. 
It was Naked Gun 33 and a third. Mm-hmm. That wasn't why I wrote it. It was the 33 and a third was a little bit of a joke. It should really have been just over 34, but it's something we've spoken about on the podcast at least a couple of times before. The Internet Worm, 1988, relied on three main, what you might call, hacking, cracking, malware-spreading techniques. Poor password choice, memory mismanagement, buffer overflows, and not patching or securing your existing software properly. The password guessing, it carried around its own dictionary of 400 or so words, and it didn't have to guess everybody's password, just somebody's password on the system. The buffer overflow, in this case, it was on the stack. Those are harder to exploit these days, but memory mismanagement still accounts for a huge number of the bugs that we see, including some zero days. And of course, not patching. In that case, it was people who'd installed mail servers that had been compiled for debugging. And when they realized they shouldn't have done that, never went back and changed it. And so if you're looking for cybersecurity predictions for 2023, there will be lots of companies out there who will be selling you their fantastic new vision, their fantastic new threats. And sadly, all of the new stuff is something that you have to worry about as well. But the old things haven't gone away. And if they haven't gone away in 33 and a third years, then it is reasonable to expect that unless we get very vigorous about it, as Congress is suggesting we do with quantum computing, that in 16 and two thirds years time, we'll still have those very problems. So if you want some simple cybersecurity predictions for 2023, you can go back three decades and learn from what happened then, (laughs) because sadly, those who cannot remember history are condemned to repeat it. Exactly. Um, Let's stay with the future here and talk about machine learning, but uh, this isn't really about machine learning. It's uh, just a good old supply chain attack involving a machine learning toolkit. Now, this was PyTorch. It's very widely used. And this attack was on users of what's called the nightly build. Many software projects, you will get a stable build, which might get updated once a month. And then you'll get nightly builds, which is the source code as the developers are working on it now. So you probably don't want to use it in production. But if you're a developer, you might have the nightly build along with the stable build so you can see what's coming next. So what these crooks did is they found a package that PyTorch depended upon. It's called Torch Triton. And they went to the PyPy, the Python package index repository, and they created a package with that name. Now, no such package existed because it was actually normally just bundled along with PyTorch. But thanks to what you could consider a security vulnerability or certainly a security issue in the whole dependency satisfying setup for Python package management, when you did the update, the update process would go, oh, Torch Triton, that's built into PyTorch. Oh, no, hang on. There's a version on PyPy. There's a version on the public package index. I better get that one instead. That's probably the real deal because it's probably more up to date. And it was more up to date. It wasn't PyTorch that ended up infected with malware. It was just that when you did the install process, a malware component was injected into your system that sat and ran there independently of any machine learning you might do. It was a a program with the name Triton. And basically what it did was it read a whole load of your private data, like host name, the contents of various important system files, like Etsy password, which on Linux doesn't actually contain password hashes, fortunately, but it does contain a complete list of users on the system. 
and your .git config, which if you're a developer, probably says a whole lot of stuff about projects that you're working on, and most naughtily and nastily of all, the contents of your SSH directory, where usually your private keys are stored. And it packaged up all that data, and it sent it out, Doug, as a series of DNS requests. So this is Log4J all over again. You remember Log4J attackers yeah. were doing this. They would go, oh, I'm not going to bother using LDAP and Jindy and all these class files, all that complexity. That'll get noticed. I'm not going to try and do any remote code execution. All I want to do is I'm just going to do an innocent-looking DNS lookup, which most servers will allow. I'm not downloading files, installing. I'm just converting a name into an IP number. How harmful could that be? Well, the answer is that if I'm the crook and I am running a domain, so I get to choose which DNS server tells you about that domain, if I look up against my domain, a server, I'm using air quotes, called some great big secret word dot my domain dot example, then that text string about the secret word gets sent in the request. So it is a really, really annoyingly effective way of stealing, or to use the militaristic jargon that cybersecurity likes, exfiltrating private data from your network in a way that many networks don't filter. And much worse, Doug, that data was, was encrypted using 256-bit AES, no less. So the string that actually wasn't a server name was actually secret data, like your private key. That was encrypted so that if you're just looking through your logs, you wouldn't see obvious things like, hey, what are all those usernames doing in my logs? That's weird. You just see like crazy weird text strings that look like nothing much at all. So you can't go searching for strings that might have escaped. However, hard-coded key and initialization vector, Doug. Therefore, anybody on your network path who logged it could, if they had evil intention, go and decrypt that data later. There was nothing involving a secret known only to the crooks. The password you use to decrypt the stolen data, wherever it lives in the world, is buried in the malware. It's five minutes' work to go and recover it. The crooks who did this are now saying, oh, no, it was only research, honest. Yeah, right. You wanted to prove even bigger air quotes than before that supply chain attacks are an issue. So to prove even bigger air quotes than the ones I just used, that by stealing people's private keys, and you chose to do it in a way that anybody else who got hold of that data by fair means or foul, now or later, doesn't even have to crack the master password like they do with LastPass. Apparently wow. these crooks, they've even said, oh, don't worry, like, oh, honestly, we deleted all the data. Well, A, I don't <laughs> believe you, why should I? And B, two late buddy mm -hmm. so where do things stand now everything's back to normal what do you do well the good news is that if none of your developers installed this nightly build basically between christmas and new year 2022 the exact times are in the article then you should be fine because that was the only period that this malicious torch triton package was on the PyPy repository the other thing is that as far as we can tell only a Linux binary was provided. So if you're working on Windows, then I'm assuming if you don't have the Windows subsystem for Linux WSL installed, then this thing would just be so much harmless binary garbage to you because 
It's an ELF binary, not a P binary, to use the technical term so it wouldn't run. And there, there are also a bunch of things that if you're worried, you can go and check for in the logs. If you've got DNS logs, then the crooks used a specific domain name. The reason that the thing suddenly became a non-issue, I think it was on the 30th of December, is the PyTorch did the right thing. And I imagine in conjunction with the Python package index, they kicked out the rogue package and they replaced it essentially with a dud Torch Triton package that doesn't do anything. It just exists to say, this is not the real Torch Triton package. And it tells you where to get the real one, which is from PyTorch itself. And it means that if you do download this thing, you don't get anything, let alone malware. We've got some indicators of compromise in the Naked Security article. We have an analysis of the cryptographic part of the malware so you can understand what might have got stolen. And sadly, Doug, if you are in doubt or if you think you might have got hit, then it would be a good idea, as painful as it's going to be. You know what I'm going to say? It's exactly what you had to do with all your last fast stuff go and regenerate new private keys or key pairs for your SSH logins. Because the problem is that what lots of developers do, instead of using password-based login, they use public-private key pair login. So they generate a key pair, you put the public key on the server you want to connect to, and you keep the private key yourself. And then when you want to log in, instead of putting in a password that has to travel across the network, even though it might be encrypted along the way, you decrypt your private key locally in memory, and you use it to sign a message to prove that you've got the matching private key to the server and it lets you in. Problem is that if you're a developer, a lot of the times you want your programs and your scripts to be able to do that private key-based login. So a lot of developers will have private keys that are stored unencrypted. Okay, well, I hesitate to say this, but we will keep an eye on this. And we do have an interesting comment uh, from an anonymous reader on this story who asks, in part, would it be possible to poison the crook's data cache with useless data, SSH keys, and executables that expose or infect them if they're dumb enough to run them? Basically, bury the real exfiltrated data behind a ton of crap they have to filter through. Honeypots or fake databases are a real thing. They're a very useful tool, both in cybersecurity research, letting the crooks think they're into a real site so they don't just go, oh, <laughs> that's a cybersecurity company I'm giving up. They don't actually try the tricks that you want them to reveal to you. And also useful for law enforcement, obviously. The issue is if you wish to do it yourself, just make sure that you don't go beyond what is legally okay for you. Law enforcement might be able to get a warrant to hack back. So where the commenter said, hey, why don't I just try and infect them in return? The problem is if you do that, well, you might get a lot of sympathy. In most countries, you would nevertheless almost certainly be breaking the law. So make sure that your response is proportionate, useful, and most importantly, legal, because there's no point in just trying to mess with the crooks and ending up in hot water yourself. That would be an irony that you could well do without. All right. Very good. Thank you very much for sending that in, dear anonymous reader. If you have an interesting story, comment, or question you'd like to submit, we'd love to read it on the podcast. You can email tips at sophos.com. You can comment on any one of our articles, or you can hit us up on social at Naked Security. That's our show for today. Thanks very much for listening. For Paul Ducklin, I'm Doug Amath, reminding you until next time to stay, stay secure. secure.